Now, I don't know uh, whether you knew that hymn. Uh, it's certainly been a long time since I've uh, sung this hymn, uh, but it seemed uh, wonderfully appropriate, especially the second verse. Uh, but weaker yet, that thought must prove to search thy great eternal plan. And uh, that's our theme tonight, the great uh, eternal plan uh, of God. And I want us to ask, uh, welcome back by the way, Uh, trust your uh, Christmas and New Year, uh, which all seems so very far away now, Uh, but I trust it all went uh, well, Uh, the six weeks or so break was not long enough. Uh, I was thinking this morning as I was beginning uh, lecture number 16, uh, we've got uh, a ways to go. We, we segue uh, from uh, the doctrine of God and uh, we were considering the doctrine of the Trinity uh, at the end of uh, last semester and uh, tonight uh, we're going to take up the decisions of God, uh, the plan of God if you like. Uh, the will of God in the general, all-encompassing sense, and uh, that will lead us uh, next week to consider election uh, and reprobation, and from there we'll move on to doctrines of creation uh, and begin our study of uh, anthropology and the doctrine of man, and that pretty much will be uh, this semester's uh, workload. So, the decisions of God. Does God have a plan? Does God have an all-encompassing will in the sense that what he desires will be accomplished? Uh, It is a question that is related to the question, is the future certain? Uh, Is it certain to God? Does he know the end from the beginning? In which case, he has a plan. He is in control uh, of that plan. Now we begin um, on page two of our outline uh, after some introductory uh, quotations that you may uh, peruse later uh, today or tomorrow. Uh, I want us to get some uh, terminology uh, some, some definitional things uh, into our heads. Uh, tonight's uh, lecture is um, a little dense. Uh, I think we began last semester in a, a little dense and then perhaps a little more light, but uh, tonight we're, we're, going to, we're going to stand at the edge of the mind and plan of God. Uh, we're going to We're going to gaze into God's mind, if I can put it that way. Uh, That's a dangerous thing to do. It's almost a pretentious thing to do. It's almost a prideful thing to do. Uh, I want us to look at what Scripture says and and then raise, if not answer, but certainly raise... Uh, questions that Scripture itself seems to warrant us raising. Now, I want us to think carefully, first of all, about what it is that we're talking about, and we're going to be talking about the will of God. But when we talk about the will of God, we use that phrase, the will of God, in two quite distinct and different senses. Uh, First of all, we can use that sense, and if I can go to the um, second of the two uh, in the section under terminology, uh, we we sometimes think of the will of God as God's, it's sometimes referred to as preceptive, not perceptive, but preceptive will, the the will of God's precept. Uh, Think of it as the will of God's command. Um, his instruction, uh, what God wants us to do in terms, say, of uh, his, his moral commands, uh, the Ten Commandments. Uh, it is God's law that we do not lie. It's God's will, 
in one sense, that we do not lie, we do not steal, we do not covet. And yet, we do lie, and we do steal, and we do covet. So in that sense, the will of God's precept is not a will that is always done. It's a, it's a will that can be resisted. It's a will that can be broken. Uh, it's, a, it's an aspect of the will of God that can be flouted. Uh, do not be conformed uh, to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that you may that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Do not be conformed to this world. That's God's will. But it's not a will that is accomplished. It's certainly not accomplished fully. It's not accomplished perfectly in us. It is his will. It's the will of his precept. It's the will of his command. Now that's not what we're talking about tonight. We're talking about the will of God in another sense altogether. Uh, sometimes called uh, the will of God's events or the will of events. Uh, God's decree, God's decision, God's decision about what shall happen. Uh, in the sense of Ephesians 1.11, his eternal purpose, according to the counsel of his will, whereby for his own glory he has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. That is a will that is always accomplished. Unlike the will of God that we read in Romans 12 verse 2 in the second definition, this aspect of God's will is always accomplished. It is the will that guarantees that everything that comes to pass, comes to pass in the way he has planned. Does God have a plan? And is that plan going to be fully and absolutely fulfilled? You understand, don't you, at the very beginning here, that if you have doubts as to whether the will of God, at least the will of God's events, or the will of God's decree, if you have doubts that that will is going to be fulfilled, you cannot be certain about the future. Right? We can only be certain that our union with Christ guarantees that we will be glorified with Christ if we believe that God has a plan and he will fulfill that plan. Now, I think back on uh, previous uh, times we were together here and we talked about God's uh, relationship to time and space and some of those ideas are going to come to the surface as we think about the plan or the will or the decree of God. This lesson is about God's decretive will or the will of God's decree. Now, here's one definition, and it's a definition from a negative perspective. Uh, and this uh, definition, I pulled it from uh, a dictionary, a dictionary of Calvinism, uh, so it purports to be a term used in the context of discussing God's control over all creation. And then it cites the Westminster Confession, and we'll have cause to look at this in more detail in a few minutes. God from all eternity did by his most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. That's chapter 3 of the Westminster Confession. It's almost verbatim in question and answer 7 of the Shorter Catechism. Now, this particular definition, this author says this left the church with a philosophically deterministic universe and the inability to deal with the same complex questions raised by Calvin's doctrine of election. That's all gobbledygook for saying he doesn't like this doctrine of the will of God's decree, not as the Westminster Confession has defined it. So here's another uh, from a positive point of view, and this is the Shorter Catechism. What are the decrees, notice it's in the plural, what are the decrees of God? 
uh, we could also ask the question, what is the plan of God? What is the will of God? The decrees of God are his eternal purpose according to the counsel of his will, whereby for his own glory he hath foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. Obviously there's an omission omission at the end of that little sentence. Uh, He hath foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. Now let's, uh, let's uh, look at some scriptures together. Where, where does uh, this doctrine uh, of the decree of God, where does it come from? Well, it comes from passages like Ephesians 1.11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his Will, the counsel of his will. So, what has happened to us in the gospel, in Christ, Paul is saying, is part of God's will. It's part of his of the outworking of his purpose in us. Or uh, the familiar statement of Peter at Pentecost, and he's speaking about. Uh, the death of Jesus, and he's speaking about Calvary. Uh, Acts 2.23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Nothing happened to Jesus outside of the plan of God. It was all part of God's plan. Didn't catch God by surprise. God doesn't have one of those aha moments. This was all part of God's plan, God's purpose. The most wicked, the most, the most evil event in all of history. The crucifixion of Jesus. The, the crucifixion of one who is without sin. The, the death of, of one who is w- without sin. Every other death in human history has a just cause. The soul that sins shall die. But Jesus did not sin. And yet, this is all part of God's plan. God's purpose. Uh, Peter doesn't pause to explain it. He doesn't have a, let's have a sidebar, a philosophical sidebar moment. He, he just states it. The most wicked event in all of history is part of God's plan. Or further in Acts 4, uh, truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever the your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Now notice, uh, he's talking about uh, Herod and uh, Pontius Pilate and uh, the Gentiles, the the Romans in particular, uh, the Jews, the people of Israel. There There are four different causes for the crucifixion of Jesus. And yet it's all according to the plan of God. The purpose of God, the will of God. Uh, we could look at uh, Hebrews 6:17 and uh, Ephesians 1, 5 and 9. Uh, let's skip down to Romans 8, 28 through 30, a very familiar passage and a much loved one uh, among us as believers. Uh, we know that for those who love God, all things, not just the good things, Not just the good times, but the bad times. All things, including evil things, work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Our calling, our sovereign calling by God into faith and union with Jesus Christ is all part of God's purpose. It's part of God's overall plan. Now, you notice back in the definition from the Shorter Catechism, uh, the question was put in the plural, what are the decrees of God? And uh, that uh, raises a, a little interesting question, is there one plan or is, or is there more than one plan? Uh, is there one plan or are there many plans? And the answer to that is yes and yes. In the sense that there is one overall plan, but that plan has many different parts to it. 
There are discernible aspects to the one plan. So uh, one author puts it like this. The decree is naturally one and equated with God's purpose in the destinies of his people. And you notice in the text that we looked at, Ephesians 1, uh, 11, or Acts 2, 23, or Romans 8, uh, 28, there is one purpose, one plan, one sovereign will, one goal that God is bringing to pass. Right? Burkhoff puts it this way on top of page 4. Uh, Though we often speak of the decrees of God in the plural... Yet, in its own nature, the divine decree is but a single act of God. Now, um, I I want to narrow uh, the focus a little now, and I want want us to think not just of the decree of God, the plan of God in a a generic sense that governs uh, all of creation and all of history and all of providence, uh, including such things as uh, the crucifixion of Jesus and good things and bad things or all things in Romans 8. But I, I want us to think of it in particular in relationship to our own salvation. Is there a plan in our salvation? Are we saved because there's a plan, because there's a purpose? Now, I'm summarizing here uh, a very fascinating uh, essay by uh, John Murray uh, called uh, The Plan of Salvation. And in this essay, uh, he talks about the distinct uh, elements comprised in the design or plan have often been spoken of as the distinct decrees. Now, what is he talking about? He's talking about God as a plan that involves creating. He creates human beings. He creates Adam and Eve. He creates a human race. God has a plan that includes the permission to allow sin to come into the world. Now, however that is explained, part of God's sin is still part of God's plan. It is contained within God's plan. It doesn't catch God by surprise. God's plan for our salvation includes the coming into the world of sin. It includes such things as God decreeing, planning to send his son to die for us, to propitiate our sins, to redeem us, to send the Holy Spirit, to apply that which Christ has accomplished upon the cross to us individually. So Murray puts it like this, we are required to make the following analysis God set his love upon men. In consequence, he decreed their salvation. And in order to achieve this end, he decreed to send his son to secure their salvation. And in that brief outline, we have a plan of salvation. We have an order of the divine decrees. Now, we'll be talking about um, election uh, and reprobation in, in, in detail next uh, Wednesday evening, uh, God willing. So I, I want to stay away from those particular uh, aspects of God's uh, decree. And uh, I want us to think uh, more in terms of the general idea of God's plan, particularly as it relates to our salvation. This plan is... Um, and I'm on top of page five. Uh, I, I want us to think through this a, a little uh, uh, carefully for sure. Um, this, this, the idea when we talk about God's plan or God's decree, uh, we have in mind a decision of sovereignty. Uh, God's sovereignty. It's an aspect of God's control. It's an aspect of God's sovereignty. Is God sovereign in the salvation of men and women? Now that sovereignty can have various aspects to it. It can have a causative aspect and it can have a permissive aspect. God created a world in which sin would be possible. God is still sovereign even though that sovereignty can be viewed both causally and permissively. Uh, That idea of a plan also contains the idea of an expression 
of love towards sinners. And that love is both common and special. Uh, Common in the sense of the love of God to all men and women, in the sense that he causes the rain to fall upon the just and the unjust, and so on. And then a special love in in redeeming sinners from their sin and uniting them to Christ and saving them eternally. That plan has uh, uh, an aspect uh, of predestination, uh, of uh, election on the positive side and reprobation on the negative side uh, within a, a, a total control of God over the entirety of providence. Now the content of this decree can be thought of from several uh, perspectives and let me suggest from the point of view of history uh, what we're talking about that God has a plan we're, we're talking about God's victory if, if we have a view of history in which we say God is going to be victorious Jesus is going to triumph um, the whole of history can be summarized in terms of Genesis 3.15. The seed of the woman will crush the head of Satan. Matthew 16, Jesus at Caesarea Philippi saying, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And then you, you run to the closing chapters, um, the defeat of the Antichrist, and the man of sin, uh, the, 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 the beast of the sea, the beast of the earth. Um, Satan himself, the triumph of God in the new Jerusalem. You've gone from Genesis to Revelation. You've outworked the entire plan of God in terms of the whole of history. History is certain. The outcome of history is certain. The end is certain. God has a plan. There will be a new Jerusalem. There will be a new heavens and a new earth. Not one whom the Father has given to the Son will be lost. Satan cannot snatch a single lamb from the hand of the Father or from the hand of Jesus. History is certain. God has a plan. A determinate purpose. He fulfills his will of decree. It's what helps us sleep at night. Right? It's what helps us close our eyes in absolute and total confidence that whatever happens is the outworking of God's sovereign plan. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job believed God has a plan. You can look at it from the point of view of the sinner. My ultimate salvation. Uh, the, The possibility of assurance. How can I be absolutely certain that I will make it all the way to heaven? Because God has a plan. And in that plan, he says, having begun a good work, he will add all the finishing touches. He will accomplish every last jot and tittle of that plan. He'll fulfill it to the letter. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, and notice, he jumps all the way to glorification. If we are justified, if we are in a right relationship with God this evening through the gospel, we will be, and Paul says, we are glorified. That's how certain he is. Now, you can only be certain of salvation as far as you are concerned if you believe God has a plan and that plan is inviolable. That will is immutable. Or you can think of it from the point of view of God himself, that no one and nothing can ultimately thwart his purpose. 
This is a great view of God, isn't it? That's why we, we, we sang together this uh, extraordinary hymn, Lord, my weak thought in vain would climb to search the starry vault profound. In vain would wing her flight sublime to find creation's utmost bound. But weaker yet that thought must prove to search thy great eternal plan, thy sovereign counsels born of love long ages ere the world began now I do want you to see that if you modify your idea of God's plan God's decree you also modify along with it your understanding of God your understanding of personal salvation and your understanding of providence of history right so this this idea of the plan of God or the decree of God has an all-encompassing nature to it. Now, there are um, alternative understandings to God's decree, and let me, let me uh, try and uh, uh, pierce my way through uh, um, a, a great deal of uh, dense material here by doing what I sometimes call um, the election, election is not fair test. Now, apologies to my Methodist uh, br- brothers and sisters who are here this evening. I mean, no, nothing personal here. Um, but uh, some of these issues have divided the church. And I want us to see um, the kind of responses that actually do divide us on this particular question. Uh, you're having a conversation with somebody and uh, the topic of election has come up and the, and the response is, election is not fair. Now, I want, I want you now to respond to the person who says, election is not fair. What, what are you going to say? What's your immediate thought when somebody says, election is not fair? One, one possible response is, God is sovereign. He can do whatever he pleases. Now, that's what Paul seems to be saying, seems to be saying in Romans chapter 11. He talks about the potter and the clay, and one, one uh, vessel is made to honor, and another vessel is made to uh, dishonor. Can, can, can the clay say to its maker, this is, this is not fair? That's, that's Paul's argument. God is sovereign. He is the potter. He can do whatever he pleases. That seems to be the argument. Difficult as that, as that is in Romans 11, austere as that is in Romans 11, and we'll have cause to think about it more next week when we talk about election and, and reprobation. But you can, you can understand from Romans 11, the response of Paul could be, God is sovereign. He can do whatever he wants. That puts you in a certain category with regard to the decree, if that is your response. We'll, we'll come there in a minute. Another possible response is, if it's fairness you want, we're all going to be damned. Right? We're talking about election. Somebody says election isn't fair. And you say, well, if you, if you want fairness, if you want justice... We're all sinners. We all deserve to be, to, be, to be damned. We're all going to be damned. Unless, unless God does something, fairness, justice, is going, to end, is going to lead us all to damnation. You understand that in responding that way, you're pre-considering your fallenness as an entity, as, as an aspect that you consider when you are thinking about election. That you consider election having already put on the table your fallenness. Right? That, that also lands you in a certain place with regard to how you think about the decree. Now, there are other responses. Uh, we are all elect. Uh, and perhaps we are all reprobate uh, with uh, response to a certain uh, person, but um, we're all elect here in the sense that that's what possibly a universalist might say. Uh, everyone is going to be saved. Now, I just, want to, I just want to think about the first two responses this evening. One, the response of sovereignty 
Secondly, the response of justice or fairness. Now, turn, uh, turn with me to the page that has the little charts, um, and one has intemporary and the other has subspecie aeternitatis. And uh, follow me very closely, put your thinking cap on. Uh, I, I, want us to, I want us to make a clear distinction here so that we, we're absolutely clear what we're talking about. Uh, the top line in tempore, uh, that is in time, in history. Now, creation, fall, exodus, captivity, incarnation, Calvary, Pentecost, 2013, second coming, eternity. That's the timeline of history. Those... All of those events occur in that sequence. No matter, no matter what you think of God's decree in terms of the, the, the way God plans salvation, all of, all of those things fall out in history chronologically in that sequence. Now, that's not what we're talking about when we're talking about the decree of God. So, so drop down to the next section. We are talking about... A logical order in the mind of God. As God plans salvation, how does God do that? And various, various folk who believe in the doctrine of election and believe in the doctrine of reprobation... Uh, we're not talking about those who don't believe in election and don't believe in reprobation. That's another category. But we're talking about those who actually believe that the Bible teaches a doctrine of election and reprobation, that God has a plan, that God has a decree. How does that decree logically work itself out? Now, there are various aspects to the decree of God. God decrees to create God decrees to permit the fall. God decrees to elect and reprobate. God decrees to send Jesus as the Savior. Those are all parts, aspects of the decree of God. Those, those who answer the question... Election is not fair by saying God is sovereign. He may do as he pleases. Tend to think of the order of the decrees, the logical order of the decrees, in, in terms of uh, the column on the extreme right. You see, supralipsarian, double predestination. Um, that the first thing... The, 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 the most prominent idea in, in the decree is election itself. Election and reprobation. God, God elects some and reprobates others on a pure act of sovereignty. And everything else, creation, uh, the fall, uh, the, the, actual, the actual election and, and, and reprobation of those uh, that end up in being glorified or, or in the column of the, of the damned, uh, all of that then is a logical outcome of an act of pure sovereignty. Uh, others, others have suggested that within a consideration of election and reprobation, there ought to be even even in the logic of God's thought, a pre-consideration of their fallenness. So if you go to the column, for example, on the extreme left, uh, we'll, just, we'll just look at that one for a minute, uh, and notice the word infralipsarian. This, this just happens to be the single rather than double predestination column. You've got, you've got the decree to create, and then a decree to permit the fall... And then from that, that fallen humanity, God elects some. That is an act, not of sovereignty, it is an act of sovereignty, but it's not so much an act of sovereignty as an act of grace. Grace is, is bestowed on those who already logically have fallen. 
and, and election is, is in, that, uh, in that scheme of things viewed more as an act of grace than an act of sovereignty. Now, um, whatever, you, whatever you make uh, of, of that, um, uh, I, think, I think it's an issue. Uh, if you turn the page to page 8, uh, you'll see, you'll see um, some names here. Uh, those, those who have emphasized the sovereignty of God in his decree, uh, the supralapsarians, and there are some very uh, big names there, uh, Theodore Beyser, uh, Calvin's uh, successor, for example, uh, William Perkins, you'll see his name, uh, perhaps the most uh, famous uh, Calvinistic uh, theologian at the turn of the 16th uh, century from, from around about 1595 or so to about 1610, uh, about 30 or 40 years before the Westminster Confession, William Perkins, uh, Samuel Rutherford, uh, a very well-known name, uh, the sands of time are sinking, uh, one, of the, uh, one of the delegates, Scottish delegates at the Westminster Assembly, um, I didn't, uh, I didn't for some reason put his name in here because I forgot, uh, but William Twist should be in this column. Uh, he would be the prolocutor, the chairman, if you like, of the Westminster Assembly, uh, who wrote a, 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 a massive book uh, of many hundreds of pages uh, uh, defending uh, the supralapsarian way of understanding God's uh, decree. Uh, then you can come down uh, through the Dutchman, uh, Abraham Kuyper, uh, Arthur Pink, uh, uh, Van Til, perhaps, um, uh, certainly Robert Raymond, uh, some of you know Robert Raymond's new systematic uh, theology. Uh, Louis Burkhoff, uh, I don't know where Burkhoff is, you can read him one way or you can read him another way, and uh, various people have put him in different, uh, on different sides on this issue that may suggest he's a very good theologian uh, because he manages to straddle uh, the fence. Uh, perhaps the most well-known name in the 20th century would be Hermann uh, Huxima. Uh, those are some of the notable uh, supralapsarians. Uh, on the other side are names uh, that would be familiar to you. I'm, I'm not putting John Calvin in here uh, because I think this debate was before Calvin's time. Uh, but certainly look at uh, John Owen, for example, and Matthew Henry, George Whitfield, Jonathan Edwards, Spurgeon, Warfield, uh, James Henley Thornwell. Uh, James Henley Thornwell was um, uh, argued strongly for the infralapsarian case. I, I reread him again today. Uh, he gets quite, uh, quite hot uh, and bothered at one place uh, defending infralapsarianism. He does believe, now there are some, uh, there are some like, uh, like Dabney, for example, R.L. Dabney, uh, who uh, uh, ministered in uh, a, a wonderful place called uh, Tinkling Springs. Uh, I have to say, when I visited Tinkling Springs, I found it uh, amusing that any place would be called uh, Tinkling Springs. But um, uh, R.L. Dabney, for example, um, uh, argued very strongly that this issue that we're talking about tonight uh, is moot. Uh, that it's not something that uh, theologians should even talk about. It's not a question that should arise. Uh, I, I rather side with James Henley Thornwell uh, on this issue, of course, uh, that it is, a, it is a worthy topic. We, we need to discuss it, certainly with a, a great deal of reverence. Um, Van Til, for example, has argued that since God is outside of space and time, uh, to argue about anything that appears to be sequential uh, is, is moot and therefore, and therefore uh, not a topic uh, that uh, we really should be, should be uh, talking about. Um, I, uh, I, I think that we're not talking here about something chronological, but something logical, and I do think that logic is also part of the way God thinks. And if that isn't the case, I think we're all in big, big trouble. Um, so I do think there's a logical case even for the way in which God thinks. Now, having said that, uh, I've, given you, uh, I've given you something uh, to go to bed with tonight. 
Uh, instead of watching whatever it is you watch in bed uh, on TV or whatever, uh, I, I want you to take this, uh, this order of the decrees uh, and think about it. And I've given you, uh, I've given you this is modified a little from uh, a very famous uh, table that B.B. Warfield uh, includes in his book, The Plan of Salvation. And uh, it does go from extreme left, though it probably should be on the extreme right, uh, it, it probably should all be flipped the other way, but superlapsarianism is on my scheme on the extreme left here, and Pelagianism is on the extreme uh, right. Uh, and uh, you'll notice various, uh, various views uh, along the way. Um, these, are, these are important... Uh, uh, th- th- this is an important topic. Um, it, it's an important topic to the extent that we ask the question, to what degree of certainty can we put the future, um, history in general, or my own particular future as a believer, as someone in union with Christ? Can anything threaten that? Uh, And and the idea that God has an all-powerful, sovereign, immutable plan and decree uh, does, I think, uh, affect the way we, we, we think, not just about the future generally, uh, but the way in which we think about uh, the future as far as our own individual uh, salvation uh, is uh, concerned. Now, just one, uh, one little interesting thing. Um, if you look at page 6, um, I have on page... No, let, look at page 10. Look at page 10. Uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith. Uh, this is, of course, our own confession of faith that uh, our office bearers and uh, ministers uh, subscribe Uh, It's been part of Presbyterian subscription in one form or another since since the middle of the uh, 17th century. And I want you to look at these opening statements. Uh, God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will. That's Ephesians 1.11 language, you understand. Uh, By the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. Now, then there are three caveats. Caveat number one is to say that God is not the author of sin. Uh, God is not the author of sin. Um, You know, Reformed theology has insisted that God creates uh, free agents who are themselves responsible for sin. Even Peter on the day of Pentecost says, it is you who crucified Jesus, right? And you are responsible for it. And yet it was all part of the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. Uh, God creates free agents who are themselves responsible for sin. First uh, John 3, 1, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Or Psalm 92, 15, the Lord is upright, he is my rock, uh, and there is no unrighteousness in him. God is not the author of sin. Now, the confession doesn't philosophically explain that, it just states it. Now, notice the second caveat uh, in, uh, on the top of page 10. Nor is violence offered to... Uh, the will of the creatures, uh, nor is uh, violence offered to the will uh, of the creatures. Uh, there, was a, there is a concern among some that God's plan and the certainty of the fulfillment of that plan uh, eliminates uh, human responsibility. Uh, and uh, a Reformed theology has insisted that uh, forward ordination takes place through means. So Paul can say in Philippians 2, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Right? There's sovereignty language even, even within uh, uh, an understanding that we're not robots. 
we, we, we do have freedom to act according to our natures. And then there's a third caveat uh, that the confession uh, raises, nor is the liberty or contingency of second causes uh, taken away, but rather uh, established. So the confession raises these, uh, these uh, three sort of boundaries. Uh, God fulfills his purpose, but he's not the author of sin. Uh, he doesn't uh, remove, uh, he doesn't remove um, it, it, violence isn't offered to the will of the creatures, nor is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but uh, rather uh, established. Then, uh, then one more uh, statement uh, in the confession, and that is um, uh, uh, to be found in section 6, and you see it underlined. Uh, Try and follow the argument here. As God has appointed the elect unto glory, so has he by the eternal and most free purpose of his will foreordained all the means thereunto. Wherefore, they who are elected, being fallen in Adam. Being fallen in Adam. Now, is the confession saying that when God elects, he already considers them logically to be fallen. Right? They, are, they are already fallen. He has already decreed permission to allow the fall to take place. However, we understand that. Right? So, so election takes place out of a pre-consideration of their fallenness. In other words, the confession here would be infralapsarian. Right? And there are many who think that the Westminster Confession is infralapsarian, and uh, there are, I've certainly read in, uh, many times people who, who say the Westminster Confession is committed to an infralapsarian point of view. That would be, that would be wholly uh, impossible given the makeup uh, of the Westminster divines themselves. You remember that the likes of its chairman, William Twiss, uh, and the likes of Samuel Rutherford and many others uh, were decidedly supralapsarian and they were ready to go to war over it. Uh, they were ready to engage in some, in some uh, at least uh, m- mental uh, fisticuffs uh, over this uh, issue. Uh, and uh, I think what is taking place here in the confession is that some are reading this from a consideration of the mind of God logically considered within the decree, uh, and others are simply saying that they are fallen in Adam in space and time. Uh, and I think that there's, uh, there's a way of reading this that uh, superlapsarians uh, can understand it, and there's a way of reading this in which infralapsarians can understand it. Now, I told you uh, right at the very beginning, this is a dense uh, matter and uh, some, some very profound, uh, wonderful uh, theologians and scholars uh, within our own tradition have said this is an issue uh, that uh, perhaps should not belong in theology, that uh, we've, we've not just come to the edge as it were, but we've actually jumped over the edge and we've gone uh, into areas uh, where a sign has been posted, no trespassing. Um, I, I do think that all of us, to some extent, are going to be uh, at, at least forced into answering the question, when, when somebody says election is not fair, um, the way we answer that question inevitably, I think, tells us that we've gone in one direction or the other direction in terms of how we view the decree of God uh, in its logical uh, outcome. Uh, all of this to say uh, that uh, we, we, we segue now from here uh, into election and reprobation. Uh, that there is uh, in scripture a doctrine of election uh, and that there is in scripture a doctrine of reprobation and uh, we'll want to We'll, we'll need at least some of these ideas in order to make sense uh, of what Scripture seems to be saying 
with regards to election and reprobation, and particularly, are we to consider reprobation as almost the mirror opposite of election? Um, God give us uh, minds and hearts and spirits and affections uh, that when we view these, uh, these immensities uh, and infinities, uh, we have cause to bow down and worship him uh, who is unfathomable uh, and ultimately incomprehensible uh, to us. God has revealed a little uh, of himself and of his mind to us. Uh, and I think that in a Christ-like, humble way, we can come and ask our Heavenly Father some questions, even if the answer to those questions may be, um, I cannot tell you. Uh, maybe maybe, maybe we, just, we just see a little glimpse uh, of the answer. Uh, and we are lost, as it were, in the unfathomability uh, of the mind uh, of God. Well, let's pray together. Father, uh, we thank you. We thank you that you have a plan, that you do have a purpose. In whatsoever way we understand that plan logically to be conceived, we thank you that that plan is inviolable. That having begun a good work, you will complete it unto the day of Jesus Christ. That not one will be snatched from your Father's hands. Lord, we thank you as we come uh, into your presence this evening that you have pulled back the curtains and shown us a little of yourself. Uh, We ask uh, tonight again that we might be lost in wonder and love and praise as we think on these great things. Hide them now within our hearts. Give us servant Jesus-like spirits as we walk with you in the gospel. For Jesus' sake we ask it. Amen.